Today's reading is Exodus 16, 1 through 18. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumblings of the Israelites. Tell them, At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told, some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it up by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. The word of the Lord. Well, I'm excited to dive into this text because uh, it's, it's a delicious text that I, I think offers a lot of opportunities for learning for us regarding who God is and what it means to live faithfully in this world as the people of God. But before we jump in, I just kind of want to give a, a quick reminder of where we've been to this point. Uh, we've been using the narrative lectionary again this year as a, as a tool that walks us through the grand story of Scripture over the course of a year. And we'll spend the bulk of our time, rightfully so, uh, in the Gospel of John starting around Christmas time. But before we get there, we've been looking at the story that leads up to and makes sense of Jesus. And we started all the way back at the very beginning in Genesis, reminding ourselves of the God who created the cosmos and the unique role and work that he tasked us with as humans in this creation as divine image bearers. And then we saw the way that God covenanted with Abraham, that, that he would bless the entire world through Abraham's offspring. And we saw how Abraham's faith in that promise of God was tested by the potential sacrifice of his only son, Isaac, which in the end provided a dramatic picture of God's provision. 
and the often surprising ways that God's purposes move forward in our world. And then after that, we looked at Jacob's story. And his is, is one of deceit, yes, but also one that reminds us that God's blessing isn't something we earn, but is rather sheer grace, and it comes despite our brokenness. And then last week, we began to wade into the Exodus story, where, where we see a God who cares deeply for the oppressed, who, who hears our cries of pain and anguish. And, and we saw in God's call to Moses how that call is personal, how that call changes our paradigm and provides an invitation to partner with God in his mission in our world. And we looked at God's conversation with Moses, a truly revelatory moment where, where God shows both his desire to be known by his people and yet at the same time a God who is far greater than we can ever comprehend and is well beyond our control. Now that burning bush encounter came later in Moses' life, but, but it came early on at the beginning of Moses' vocation as the man whom God would use to liberate Israel from their Egyptian oppressors. And so we fast forward from that encounter to today's text. And by now, Israel, this, this mixed group of ragtag slaves, has, has witnessed God's great power over Pharaoh on their behalf. And God's liberation of Israel, I, I want to remind us, is a revolutionary act in more ways than one. I mean, over the course of human history, slaves are almost always ignored and irrelevant. And, and in the ancient understanding in particular, the gods would never act on behalf of slaves, but always for kings and empires. The gods backed winners. Winners in the ways that we often still tend to see them today. The rich and the powerful, the mighty. But this God, Yahweh, has turned the world and its rules upside down. Not for the first time and certainly not for the last. And if we're at all familiar with scripture, we know that it was quite the dramatic exit from Egypt. And with all the plagues, and it cultivated, cultivated, or culminated sorry, in, in the death of Egypt's firstborns. And that, that sparked this rush of activity and this dash to the wilderness for, for Israel and even then, as Pharaoh had yet another heart change and sent his army out to try to chase them down and enslave Israel once again, this God parted the waters to make a way for Israel and then sealed the way behind Israel, causing the destruction of the Egyptian army. And from there, there was only one way for Israel to go. Forward into this unknown future, this unknown world. And so they followed God. They followed Moses, which leads us to today's text. And I, I think when we hear the passage that Luke just read, it, it can be really easy for us to, to dismiss the Israelites as ungrateful, as faithless. I, I mean, here, God had saved them in undeniably miraculous fashion. I mean, he answered, finally, their cries for liberation, and, and now they're free from captivity. One of the very first things they do is complain. They grumble against God. And if we were to read the book of Exodus in full, we'd see that complaining seems to be one of Israel's favorite pastimes. I mean, a, a form of the word complaint appears six different times just in this passage alone. And yet, as much as we might be tempted to condemn the Israelites for their faithless behavior here, the biblical text does not condemn the people. God does not condemn the people. 
Rather, once again, God hears their cries and he responds to their need. God meets them with grace, which is always unmerited. I mean, let's be honest too. I mean, would we have behaved any differently if we were in their place? I mean, at at the point we're at in in the story here, They've been out of Egypt a little over a month. So they've been in the desert for over a month. They've been wandering in some of the most barren and arid real estate on the planet. I mean, the desert is a place of harsh climate. Food and water are hard to come by. The heat alone will wear you down. I mean, I think it's fair to say that generally nobody wants to spend any more time in the desert than absolutely necessary, right? And so over a month into this, they, they've got to be wondering what God has in store for them. Where is Moses bringing them? And, and what we'll see, and what Israel soon learns, is that to survive, they are going to need to learn to depend on God for everything. Absolutely everything. The first and most important step in Israel's process of really being formed into the people of God is to learn to trust this God completely. Just as a baby learns to trust that that her parents will feed her, the people need to learn to trust that God will meet their needs. Their bodies might be free from slavery at this point, but it's going to take much more to free their hearts and minds. And so God responds to the needs of his people in the desert. First with water in the passage that preceded today's reading, and, and now with food. And I think we can easily miss the extravagance of these gifts that God gives them. Verse 13 says, That evening quail came and covered the camp. Now, we live in a culture where eating meat is pretty much a staple for many of our meals, unless we're vegetarian or vegan. And so to us, that might not seem like a big deal. But in the ancient world, the average family ate meat only on special occasions, like at feasts and festivals. Meat was not a staple in their daily diet. And yet here, in this desolate land, the people not only received meat, but did so on a daily basis. God responded to their anguished complaints with grace, lavishing them with far more than they could have hoped for. And I want to pause for a second here and just say that that I know some of us might feel like we're in a desert place right now. I mean, after all that the last few years have held along with any personal challenges or pains we might be facing, it's quite likely that many of us here in the room and, and, and online find ourselves in a position not unlike Israel, where we're just crying out for some sort of relief, asking if God hears us and if God notices our situation. Just like Dave talked about last week, once again, today's text reminds us that our God is a God who hears and sees and responds. God does not turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to our plight. God is faithful. God is with us. God will respond. Our our hope will be found nowhere else. And so God's gift of the quail, again, is extravagant. It goes above and beyond what the Israelites could have hoped for in their cries. And the second gift, well, maybe a little less exciting, is equally generous. At first glance, the the bread or the manna doesn't appear like much. I mean, twice the text used the word thin to describe this mysterious substance, thin like frost. 
And when the people saw it, they asked, what is it? Or manna in Hebrew. That's what manna means. What is it? That's what they call this bread. What is it? This was new. They had never before received bread as a free gift that they couldn't control, predict, plan for, or own. It's a wonder. It's a miracle. It's irrational in some ways, but God's abundance transcends our puny expectations. Now, again, I said this manna cannot be owned. God tells the people they must only take enough for the day's needs. No more, no less. In fact, if we were to read a little bit further in the text, we'd learn that if anyone gathered more bread than they needed for the day, it would spoil and become moldy and rotten and useless the following morning. God was teaching his people to trust him daily. In fact, God explicitly says that in doing this, he is testing the people. Now, I want to stop there for a moment because I think talk of God testing people can sometimes create a misconception. And what God is not doing here is seeing if Israel deserves his favor or blessing, if they're worthy to be his people. That's not the test because the truth is they're not worthy. Neither are we. But in his grace, God has already committed himself fully to them and fully to us. For better or for worse, this testing is never to see if God picked the right people or for worthy recipients of God's grace. Rather, this testing reveals where the people are at. It reveals how strong their trust in God is and where they have work yet to do. I mean, just like a test that's given by a teacher to a student reveals both to the teacher and to the student how strongly the student is grasping the material. In the same way, this limit on how much bread to take reveals to God and to Israel the strength of their trust in God, or lack thereof, revealing the work that's yet in front of them. And I think these two two facets of the desert experience, the the testing and the expression of God's faithfulness, they're, they're common throughout Scripture. Throughout the Bible, the desert is this setting that's rich with meaning. My, my friend Steph Spencer would probably love to give an entire sermon on the significance of the desert in Scripture. But for today's purposes, I just want to simply point out that one of the threads in Scripture is that the desert is often a place where the faithfulness of God is revealed and where the faithfulness of God's people is tested. Now, as we continue on, I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning focusing on the last part of today's reading. And as a refresher, it said the Israelites did what they were told regarding the gathering of the manna. Some gathered much, some little. And the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And I mentioned a moment ago how the, the quail and the manna were expressions of God's abundant provision for his people. Uh, the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, perhaps one of the most uh, compelling prophetic voices still in the church today, and, and you know I admire the prophetic voices, uh, he called this experience for Israel the liturgy of abundance. And, and I'll just say that, that I'm indebted to Brueggemann's insight in much of, much of what follows, but he called it a liturgy of abundance because it was this rhythm of daily gathering what was needed from God's gracious provision. And this kind of abundance was a new experience for Israel. It ran in direct contradiction to what Brueggemann calls the myth of scarcity. 
the myth of scarcity. Here in the desert of all places, everybody has enough. Their every need is being met. But this is radically different than their experience in Egypt where they were taught to believe that myth of scarcity time and time again. I mean, Egypt was a place where bread came in exchange for labor, where bread was given only as a reward for their productivity, where bread was always received with fearful anxiety. And, and so God's gift of bread in the desert is a decisive break from the exploitative conditions of the Egyptian bread. And yet because Israel had learned to believe that myth of scarcity in Egypt, eventually some of the people start to hoard the bread. And like we mentioned, when they try to bank it, it turns sour and rots because you cannot store up God's generosity for yourself. As with Israel, I think we face this temptation to serve two masters, Yahweh and Pharaoh, and to trust in two bread supplies, the bread of heaven and the bread of the sweat of our brow. And yet both Scripture and experience urge us to see that seeking to have it both ways only generates endless anxiety. The way out of that anxiety is to make a definitive decision. It's to recognize that the gospel is the affirmation made in the wilderness that God knows what we need and that God faithfully supplies everything required for life. Uh, there's a famous quote uh, belonging to Gandhi that the world has enough for everyone's need, but not everyone's greed. And, and there still is enough manna to go around today. But when we live in a world where the roughly 2,000 billionaires in our world have as much combined wealth as 60% of the world's population, or 4.6 billion people, we can see that the myth of scarcity is still alive and well. In fact, it's stronger today than at any other point in human history. And the stench of the rotten, hoarded manna is enough to make us all sick. God invites us into a different way. And, and we, as his people, must fight the temptation to let scarcity drive us and, and must instead trust in the faithfully abundant provision of God daily. I mean, cultivating this kind of trustful dependence is so important that we pray it every single week in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's an expression of dependence, and it's a clear allusion to today's scripture reading. And yet, as I think we all know, that is no small task. We, who now are in the richest nation in human history, are today's main coveters. We, we never feel that we have enough. We have to have more and more and more. And this insatiable desire is killing us. And as Christians, we're not immune to this either. We, we must confess that we're torn apart by this conflict between our attraction to the good news of God's abundance and the power of our fearful belief in scarcity. A belief that, that makes us greedy and, and mean and unneighborly. And, and that battle didn't end in the wilderness thousands of years ago. The conflict between the liturgy of abundance and the myth of scarcity remains one of the defining problems confronting us today. The gospel of abundance tells us that we find our beginning 
in the beautiful, inexplicable grace of a God who lovingly brought this world into being. Each and every one of us have been miraculously loved into existence by God. And the story of, our, of abundance says that our lives will end in God, find their fullness and meaning in God, that this well-being cannot be taken from us. In the words of Paul in the book of Romans, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's abundance. And that's a story that Israel was learning and, and that we at a, a different place further along in the story are still learning. And what we know about our beginning and what we know about our ending should create a different kind of present for us as the people of God. In the desert journey of our lives, we can live in such a way that we're not driven, controlled, anxious, frantic, or greedy precisely because we have experienced and we have chosen to trust in God's ongoing gracious provision. And when we rest in that abundance... We find the peace to care for others as we've been cared for. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, Paul is kind of directing this stewardship campaign for the early church. And he presents Jesus as the model for the economy of God's kingdom. Even though Jesus was rich, Paul says, yet for your sakes he became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. We've heard it said that it takes money to make money, but, but Paul says that it takes poverty to produce abundance. Jesus gave of himself to enrich others, and we are invited to do the same. And Paul suggests that equity in the church results when the ones with abundance and the ones with need live in generosity toward each other. The way the bread is distributed in the manna story is a model for the way the church should share and distribute goods liberally and with equity. Maybe it should come as no surprise that, that Paul ends his stewardship letter by quoting Exodus 16, saying, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. Now, obviously, it's easier to talk about these things than it is to live them out, right? I mean, many, many people, both inside and outside the church, don't have a clue how to operate by God's economy. But it's, it's imperative that we in the church have to begin to do so. No, no matter how economically compromised that might make us feel, our world needs us to be the ones who live this good news of abundance and who reject the myth of scarcity. Embracing God's economy has nothing to do with being a Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, socialist or capitalist. It's much more simple and basic than all of that. All of creation has been infused with the Creator's generosity. And we can find practices and habits that allow that generosity to flow through us. Like the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, we all have an abundance of possessions, more than most in our world and likely far more than we need. And sharing our abundance might seem, as Jesus says, impossible for humans, but but he reminds us that nothing is impossible with God. I mean, none of us knows what risks God may invite and empower us to take until we open ourselves up in faithful dependence. 
I mean, just imagine if American Christians of all stripes came to a common realization that the real economic issue facing us today is whether or not the news of God's abundance can be trusted in the face of the myth of scarcity. And here Brueggemann writes, I I love this, he says, We know in our hearts that the story of scarcity is a tale of death. And the people of God counter this tale by witnessing to the manna, to God's provision. There is a more excellent bread than crass materialism. It's the bread of life. And you don't have to bake it. As God's people, we must decide where our trust is placed. The great question now facing the church is whether our faith allows us to live in a new way. Our faith, ministry, and hope are that the Creator will empower us to trust His generosity so that bread may abound. Brothers and sisters, as we close this morning, may we see that this text is not one where we should stand in judgment of our ancient brothers and sisters, but one where we stand in their shoes and we look around to see how God wishes us to order this world with his mission in mind. May we see that God faithfully and abundantly provides for us. And we're simply called to take what we need. No more, no less. May we see that greed and trust are incompatible in the kingdom of God. And as we learn to see the many ways God still provides a world rich in resources, may we marvel at this overabundance of God's grace and love. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please pray with me.